Hello, and welcome to this week's podcast presented by Freedom Life Church. We hope you find today's message uplifting and encouraging as we dive into God's Word together. If you need any information about our church or this message, please go to wearefreedomlife.com. Now let's get right into it. So this morning, by the way, my name is Sammy. Uh, And if you don't know, I'm the Connections Director here at Freedom Life Church. I'm also the Administrative Assistant. But um, this this trip just changed everything for me. And and if it's okay, I'm going to take just like two minutes and give you just a few of the highlight spots. But it transformed the way that I read the Bible. My uh, our tour guide, his name was Boaz. He said it perfectly. He said, "Before you come to Israel, you read the Bible as just being in black and white." After you come to Israel, it becomes technicolor. And it's so true because the word of God has come alive to me in such a new and beautiful way. But I want to give you a few of what I call the glory highlights or the glory spots of my of this trip because the message that I'm going to bring to you today is a little bit on the heavier, deeper, darker side. And uh, the last thing I would ever want you to think is that, oh, Sam, you must have gone to Israel and had this really heavy, dark experience. And that's just not true at all. I was like, it was the best, most glorious thing that's ever happened to me. But I need to be obedient to the word that God gave me. And there's going to be some darkness and there might be some uncomfortable moments that we're going to, that I'm going to talk about this morning. But we're going to just shed light on it. We're going to expose it. You know, darkness is dark until you expose light on it. So we're going to, we're going to talk about some deeper, darker things this morning. But before I do, I want to give you just the most beautiful memories. There's so many. We could be here all day if I told you all of them. But before we get to my message, is that okay? Do we have a couple minutes just to go through a few of these most beautiful memories that I have? One of which was we got to sit next to the Sea of Galilee. And right there is the spot where it's presumed that Jesus stood on the shore and called Peter to be his disciple. And we sat there with like the most perfect sunny day, hardly a cloud in the sky. And I can't describe to you the peace that I felt. And I closed my eyes and I just imagined what it would be like for Jesus standing right there in that very spot. And I heard the Holy whisper, the Holy Spirit whisper to me, I'm calling you too, Sammy. I'm calling you too. And then there was the boat ride on the Sea of Galilee, which I could have been on that boat all day. It wasn't long enough. It was just so cool to be in the middle of where all of these miracles happened. And I was just undone as we're riding on this boat and our boat captain plays worship music for us. And he played Oceans and Waymaker. And I just had tears streaming down my cheeks underneath my sunglasses imagining where his feet must have been on the, on top of that water, and I was on that very spot. It was so beautiful. And then there was the Dead Sea. Oh, I could have stayed there so long. They only let you float in the Dead Sea for 15 minutes at a time because the water is so salty. Of course, you float, but it also will dehydrate you. So I took my glorious 15 minutes. I got to do it twice. But while I was 
floating there. I think the first time I tried it, it's sort of this experiment. You have to try to see what you do with your body to allow yourself to float. You basically just have to kick your feet up. So the first day I kind of floated like this. (laughs) And then the second day when I got to do it again, I floated like that because I heard the voice of the Holy Spirit say, Sammy, just let go. Just let go. And I did. And it was, it was just the time of my life to float there. And I, I'm going to also share this little tidbit. I told my husband, oh, no, watch out. There's so many little side travels that I, can, that I can go with stories for this trip because there's just so much that I learned. But, you know, the Dead Sea is so salty, nothing can live in it. Yes, there's no fish. There's no, you know, plant life. There's nothing. And while we were there, our, our tour guide told us there's a prophecy in Ezekiel about the Dead Sea coming back to life where there's going to be droves of fishes in the, end, in the end days. There's also a prophecy in Revelation that says the very same thing. And I would have shown you those scriptures, but I wasn't even planning on saying this, but now I feel like I should because it's exciting. About 10 years ago, they developed some special scuba gear and, and equipment that would allow them to go deep, 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 deep down into the Dead Sea. And they're discovering pods of fish way down below. If that doesn't give you a sign of the times that we're living in, I don't know what does. That was prophesied in Ezekiel thousands of years ago, and it was prophesied again in Revelation. The Lord is coming back, friends. The Dead Sea is coming back to life, and that was actually the other thing the Holy Spirit whispered to me because I said, oh, everywhere I was, I was like, this could be the last, this could be the last time I do this. This because it's probably the only time. This is like a once in a lifetime thing, probably. So I floated there and I said to the Lord, Wow, this is the last time I'm gonna get to float in the Dead Sea. And I immediately heard the Holy Spirit whisper, Yeah, next time it'll be alive. Next time it'll be alive. Isn't that awesome? Don't you want to go? Can we go? <laughs> Meet me after service. We'll talk. Okay. So the next spot was um, riding into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. I think we have a picture for that also. I think I shared this story a little bit, so I'll, I'll kind of skim through it. But I prepared this dance for two years for him as an offering of praise, and God provided the altar. And... I got to dance on Palm Sunday with the entire city of Jerusalem behind me. And it was just the most glorious moment. And I just felt so, so loved by God that he cared enough to provide this place for me to do this. And that he received that offering. It was so, it was just unforgettable. And finally, this other spot, this is, if you don't know what that is, that is the rock that's inside the church at the Garden of Gethsemane. And this is the rock where they believe Jesus cried out to God. Sorry. I can't explain to you the heavy glory in this place. I can feel it again. When you walk in this church, you have to be silent. But you don't really 
I don't think anybody can make a sound even if they wanted to. You, we walked in, our group of 45 people, and nobody said a word. And we approached this rock. And we just put, we put our hands on it. And I said to the Lord, I said, I'm so sorry that you had to do this. And I said, I'm so sorry for my sin. And then I said, but mostly I'm so sorry that you had to do this alone. That they left you. That they fell asleep. And I, and I just cried out to God in my spirit. But I'm telling you, the presence of God is so real. And I was going to share this part at the end, but I think I'll share it now. Because I told him, I'm so sorry that you had to do this. And immediately I heard his voice. And his voice said, Sammy, I would do it all over again. And I would do it for you. And that preaches all by itself. I wouldn't have to say another word. I will, but I want to tell you today, he would do it all over again. And he would do it for you. And so, before I get into my word, will you pray with me? Father, thank you so much for what you did for us. God, at that moment in time at the Garden of Gethsemane, you could have said no. But you said, not my will, but your will be done, Father. And you went through with the most difficult thing that anyone could ever do, and you did it, and you did it perfectly. And as traumatic and horrible of a death as it was, you would do it again, God, because you love us. Thank you, God, for enduring the cross. Thank you, Jesus, for this chance that we have to have eternal life with you. And we have salvation in your name. Thank you, God, for being our king. And thank you that we don't serve a dead God, but you're alive. I saw the tomb and it was empty. So, Jesus, I pray that every word that comes out of my mouth today would honor and glorify and exalt your name. And that you would open the eyes of our heart to hear from you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So now, thank you, my dear. Thank you. All right, so the message that I have to bring to you today, I had told myself before I left for my trip that I was not going to write a message until after I got back. I told other people that as well. However, about two weeks before I went on the trip, God started speaking to me about Elijah on Mount Carmel. And I said, well, I'll be, I'll be obedient and I'll write this down, but really I know he's going to give me a message when I'm over there. <laughs> well, as it turns out, this is the message that he gave to me. We're going to go to 1 Kings chapter 18. And there's a lot of text today. So buckle your seatbelt. But we're going to talk about the showdown of the gods. And uh, as you're turning your pages, I want to just give you a little bit of background knowledge about what was happening at the time. At the time of this story, it's about eight to 900 years BC before Christ. And God's people, Israel, had abandoned God. 
they had turned to paganism. In fact, they were mixing a little bit of this and a little bit of that, but they were mostly serving the pagan gods, but they were kind of blending it with their worship of the one true God. And this is the era of King Ahab and Jezebel. They're two of the most infamous king and queens of the Bible. I'm going to read to you real quickly from 1 Kings 17.30. You'll see it on the screen. It says, Ahab did what was evil in the sight of the Lord more than any other king that came before him. Meaning he was the worst. His actions, his, his ruling was the most evil in the sight of God. And it's, the Bible tells us that they turned to the Baals, the Baal gods. And we're going to talk a lot about that this morning. The, the word Baal means owner, Lord, or master. And so as, these, as the people of, of God, the Israelites, had turned from God and they turned to paganism, they were literally serving their gods which were called Baals that owned them now. They owned their soul. They were, the Baals were their Lord and master, not the one true God. And the pagans believed that there were many Baal gods. There was Baal gods for all different kinds of things. Like there was one for money. There was one for power, one for love, wisdom, the weather, etc. And so at the time, we look at Elijah, who was a prophet of God, and he was really one of the only remaining prophets. And I think at one point, Elijah believed he was the only remaining prophet because all of the rest of them were hiding. And so he believed he was alone. And for three and a half years, Elijah, during this time, prayed for a drought. So real quickly, I'm going to have it up on the screen. It's James chapter 5, verse 17 says this. Elijah was a human being, as we are told, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain for three years and six months. It did not rain on the land. Now, before we get into the why, because you think, why? Why would a prophet of God pray for a drought for three and a half years? That's pretty extreme. Doesn't seem like the godly thing to do. And so, to give you a little bit of back context, I know this is a lot of information, but bear with me because it's all going to come full circle. There was a rain bale that the, that the pagans worshipped. And they believed that in the summertime, the rain bale would be hibernating. And then in the, in the, towards the end of the summer, early fall, the, the pagans would all go to the temple, their temple, their pagan temple, and their Asherah poles, and to try to motivate the rain bale to come out of hibernation and, re, and allow for the return of the rain, they would all gather at the Asherah poles and they would engage in pretty grotesque sexual acts to try to motivate and stimulate this bale to go and mate with his wife Asherah, who is another one of their pagan gods, and then the rain would return as a symbol of their reunion. Now, let me just say, some people are uncomfortable with Christian worship. <laughs> Can you imagine? This is how they worshiped. And so, when you go back and think, three and a half years of a drought, what would happen to these people if they're engaging in these acts? Well, I can tell you, I did a little bit of research on this, the, the longer the drought would last, the more radical their behavior would become they would begin doing things like 
human sacrifices because they thought, well, if this isn't working, what's the next more extreme thing that we can do? What's the next more extreme? If we're not getting his attention this way and he's not answering our prayers by bringing the rain, what can we do? Can you even imagine what it would have been like after three and a half years of no rain, what they would have been doing? They would have been losing their minds trying to call out to this God, their Baal God. And so why would Elijah pray this? Because they had mixed their worship, the the Israelites had mixed their worship in with all of this mess. As Pastor Alicia mentioned earlier, there's black and there's white. There's light and there's darkness. And these people had once again started mixing it into a murky, filthy gray. There was a big gray area. Does that sound familiar in the day we live in? Elijah's heart broke for the heart of God. So he prayed for a drought for three and a half years. People, God is a jealous God. They were his people and they had turned away from him again and he needed to get their attention. How comfortable are we with that kind of prayer, like Elijah's prayer? How many of us would pray that our culture, that our generation might actually have to be deprived of something in order to see people turn back to God. We love to be comfortable. We love to have everything that we need. And and that's a blessing. But that is a radical prayer for Elijah to say, we need to get the attention of this generation. So I'm going to pray for a drought for three and a half years to make them desperate enough to turn back to God. So I'm going to show you, I actually had the opportunity to visit Mount Carmel. And that's a picture. And the picture just does not do it justice. It's enormous. The view, I I tried, you know, my mom had the better camera. I think this is one of my pictures maybe. But you just can't capture the whole view. That's just one little spot. It goes like a 360. It's beautiful. And what's so significant too, and this could be maybe part two, next time Sammy gets to share another message, That valley that you see is the Valley of Armageddon. So Mount Carmel, where we were standing, is right overlooking the Valley of Armageddon. Does that put, if you know what happens in the Valley of Armageddon, that's end time stuff. That's that's revelation battles. There's so much there, but it's in the same spot. So just kind of keep that in the back of your mind that this is a significant place. And so back to 1 Kings chapter 18, verses 20 through 39. I'm going to read to you what I can, I'll paraphrase if I can, but I'll never apologize for reading a long text from the word of God because it preaches all by itself. So we'll start at verse 20. So Ahab summoned all the Israelites and gathered the prophets at Mount Carmel. Then Elijah approached all the people and said, how long will you waver between two opinions? How long will you waver between two opinions? I want you to remember that if you're taking notes or highlighting, you should highlight that one. If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. But the people didn't answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I am the only remaining prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us. 
They are to choose one bull for themselves, cut it in pieces, and place it on the wood, but not light the fire. I will prepare the other bull and place it on the wood, but not light the fire. Then you call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers with fire, he is God. All the people answered, that's fine. They sound confident, don't they? Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, since you are so numerous, choose for yourselves one bowl and prepare it first. Then call on the name of your God, but don't light the fire. So they took the bowl that he gave him, prepared it, and called on the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, Baal, answer us. But there was no sound. No one answered. Then they danced around the altar that they had made. And at noon, oh my gosh, I love this part. At noon, Elijah mocked them. He said, shout loudly, for he's a God. Maybe he's thinking it over. Maybe he has wandered away. Or maybe he's on the road, our tour leader said. Maybe he's in the bathroom. Perhaps he's sleeping and will wake up. They shouted loudly and then cut themselves with knives and spears according to their custom. Do you see how they're getting more desperate? Until blood gushed over them. I mean, this is a graphic scene. All afternoon, they kept on raving until the offering of the evening sacrifice, but there was no sound. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near me. So all the people approached him. See how they got his attention. God got is getting their attention. Then he repaired the Lord's altar that had been torn down. Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob to whom the word of the Lord had come saying, Israel will be your name. And he built an altar with the stones in the name of the Lord. And then he made a trench around the altar large enough to hold about four gallons. And next he arranged the wood, cut up the bowl, placed it on the wood. He said, fill four water pots with water and pour it on the offering to be burned and fill on the wood. And then he said a second time, and they did it a second time. And then he said a third time, and they did it a third time. So the water ran all around the altar, and he even filled the trench with water. So you can see he's trying to make this even more impossible, right? At the time for the offering of the evening sacrifice, the prophet Elijah approached the altar and said, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, today, let it be known that you are God in Israel and I am your servant and that at your word, I have done all these things. Answer me, Lord, answer me so that this people will know that you, the Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. And then the Lord's fire fell and consumed the burnt offering, the wood, the stones, and the dust, and it licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell face down and said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Come on. You see, today's generation, we might think, oh, this is just a story of the Old Testament. That's just something that people did back then. They don't worship other gods anymore like this. I beg to differ. And do you see in our culture today, in a, just even if we're just looking at America, 
that their behavior, the behavior of the world is becoming radically, step-by-step, more and more extreme. Did you see the Grammys? They're trying to get attention from a source that's not going to show up for them. They're trying to call down blessings, but they're living in something that's a curse. They can rant and rave and and just spew out anger and vulgarism and perversion and confusion while engaging in all of this radical behavior and they're marching and they're screaming and they're burning buildings down. But who's giving them peace in all of that? Is there, are we seeing the peace? I don't. Where is their God? You see, Elijah was severely outnumbered in this. He thought he was the only one. The others were just hiding. But really, it's, it was 850 to 1. There were 400 prophetesses and 450 prophets. I think I said that the right way. But either way, there was 850 engaging in this, trying to call down fire from their God who did not show up for them. And stood one man who believed in God. And he called down fire from heaven. You know, I don't think that those gods, we're going to get into who even are these gods here in just a moment. I don't think they could have shown up even if they wanted to. They were in the presence of God Almighty. They couldn't come. And so my question for us today is who or what owns us? The word Baal means to own to be a Lord, to be a master. And we have to decide today, if you are in question of who or what owns us, meet us at this altar today. Because it's one or the other, as the Holy Spirit told Pastor Alicia during worship, it's black or it's white, it's dark or it's light. There's no middle. Who or what owns us? It could be as something as simple as our technology. It could be something as simple as a relationship. But I'm going to, you know, there's so many things that can own our time and own our energy and our thoughts. But I'm going to go a step deeper today. I'm going to turn you to Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 4. I'm just going to read this portion says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. Do not have other gods besides me. When you think about that word ownership, meaning God, the, that part when he says the gods do not have other gods beside me. By the way, this is the first of the Ten Commandments. Do you see what he's saying there a little bit differently now? He's saying, I brought you out of slavery Do not serve the gods who are going to own you. Do you see that? I brought you out of being a slave in Egypt. Don't go back to being a slave of another god. They were slaves again and they didn't even know it. Who or what are we slaves to? Even if we don't know it. 
Jesus died so that we can have freedom from these things. And he bought us back at the price of his blood. He shed it all for us so that we can be free. So we're going to talk a little bit about who are these gods with a lowercase g. The gods. Actually, I've done a little bit of research. There's a a book that I'm going to reference a little bit, and it's called Return of the Gods by Jonathan Kahn. I'm just going to reference it a little bit. I wish I had it to, to, to show up to you, but I've been doing a lot of research on this in the last couple, uh, last couple of months. You see, the gods, that word gods, comes from the Hebrew word shadim. Shadim. And shadim, translated to the Greek, is da emonias. Translated to English, that word is demons. When I was little and I read the Ten Commandments, I just thought that, well, I can, I can say, okay, I, I'm good on numbers one and two. I'm not going to put any gods before me, and I'm not going to build any idols because I don't have any statues in my house that I'm going to worship. As a kid, that's what I thought. I thought, okay, I'm good. One and two, I'm good. I don't have that in my life. But it's so much deeper than that, church. We're talking about the word gods isn't just a statue or a golden calf. It leads back to the word spirits, which leads to the word demons. We're talking about darkness. And so when he says, do not serve any other gods but me, he's saying, do not give yourself over to be a slave of the enemy. Am I starting to make a little bit of sense? You see, what happens when the presence of God is driven out, it leaves a void for something else to come in. And we're seeing that in our culture in America today. When the spirits, though, that are dark are driven out, they're exercised out, the spirit of God can return. When people turn their backs to God, those other spirits have to leave. And that's what we need to stand on for our nation that we will turn back, church, and it's not going to happen by just allowing the dark to be dark and keeping our light under that basket. We got to expose it. That's why I'm talking about it today. I wanted to just talk to you about all of the peace I felt on the Sea of Galilee, but the Lord said, no, I want you to expose the darkness because too long have we just been afraid and uncomfortable to talk about it. So I'm going to ask you a few things. We're going to, we're going to, I'm going to expose it today. Are you in it with me? Do we see the signs of this in America today? I'm going to talk about a few of these spirits, which we now know means demons. A few of these spirits or gods that have been worshipped for thousands of years. The one, number one I've already talked about. His name is Baal and there are many of them, but it means owner. Like I said, the Baal God's purpose all throughout history, has been to come to replace and drive out the Spirit of God, to turn people away from God and his commandments, and to insert in its place paganism, materialism, vulgarism, things like my own truth and my I'm my own God. That is the, that is the purpose of the Baal God. Have we seen this appear in our culture today? We can agree. Good. Number two, Asherah. As I mentioned, Asherah is the wife of Baal. She's also known as Ishtar or Aphrodite. 
but she's been worshipped for centuries. And this is the prostitute goddess. She is the god goddess or spirit of sexuality, sexual revolution, and her main desire is to destroy marriage and family. Actually, pornography stems back to Asherah. Some of the first examples of pornography are found with her image engaging in in these acts. The spirit of androgyny, meaning men as women, women as men, and confusing identity, and all of those attractive things, they all stems from her. Her priests would actually castrate themselves to have their hormones change. I know this is an uncomfortable topic, but there's nothing new under the sun. This has been going on. We think, oh, wow, this is just this new, strange kind of thing that's come up in our culture. No, no, this has been around for a long time. Have we seen this in our culture? We have. And the third one, third and last one that I'm going to talk about, his name is Molech, the destroyer. Molech is who the Israelites and the pagans, as they, as they blended their worship together, they would sacrifice their children to the God of Molech. He's the God of child sacrifice. He comes for our children. And I'm not going to get as deep into this as I probably wish I could. But we think, oh, this doesn't happen anymore. It's happening. And I know it's ugly. And I know it feels icky. And we don't want to talk about it. But it's happening. And it's happening today. And it's happening in America. I'll, I'll start just by mentioning the word abortion. Over the last 60 years, how many millions of babies have been aborted. As Pastor Alicia mentioned during worship, I think that was the Holy Spirit going, we're reading the same book. We are reading the same book. So we're on the same page. This is happening, Lord, in our, in our church or in our, in our world today. That's the word I'm looking for. I'll just mention the, the word human trafficking. They're coming for our, this, this molek comes to destroy our children because he knows what our children are able to do. Our children can be full of the Holy Spirit and they can change the world and they can be called as disciples and they can be called as missionaries and they can, they can change everything. They can bring Jesus to every corner of the earth and the enemy does not want them to do that. He wants to snuff them out. Have we seen this in our culture? Yes. I want you to, if you're taking notes, just write this down. God will not take shareholders of your soul. God will not take shareholders of your soul. He wants you completely. He wants us to turn to him completely. He will not share us with the enemy. It's one or the other. And before we leave today, I hope that line that we draw in the sand, I hope you know which side you're standing on. Come over to belong to him. My friend and leader and mentor, Angela, as we were getting baptized in the Jordan River, after we had learned this lesson about Baal, meaning ownership on Mount Carmel, I think it was the next day we went to be baptized in the Jordan River and we were to say one sentence My friend Angela got in the Jordan River and she said, my name is Angela and Jesus Christ is the owner of my life. 
and they baptized her. And now that's, that's embedded in my spirit so deep. My name is Sammy. And Jesus Christ is the owner of my life. Don't leave here today if you are in question. We have people who will pray with you. And it's so simple of a prayer. Jesus wants to be the owner so that you can be made free and not be made a slave. We're drawing that line in the sand today. I'm going to close with this story. We're going to flip ahead to the New Testament, actually, the book of Matthew. And I'll get to the exact spot here in, a, here in just a moment. But we went to a place called Caesarea Philippi. I think we have a picture. There's actually a few pictures that we can put up on the screen here real quick. You see, and I, I, took, I tried to take it with the panoramic view, which always makes the people look really strange. <laughs> because it's not quite natural, but it's such a big place to take a picture of. But this here is Caesarea Philippi. This was our only rainy time the whole trip. I'm telling you, darkness kind of fell on this hour of our trip a little bit. So you go into Caesarea Philippi, I had no idea. I had no idea what happened there. And in landscape, it's beautiful. There's waterfalls. There's a stream that goes by. These big, rocky mountains. It's gorgeous. But we get there, and it's rainy, and it's wet, and it's dark, clammy, and cold. And then we listen to the sound of our tour guides in our, in our earbud start to talk about what actually happened here. And my stomach started to turn. See, this was the Mecca of pagan worship in Jesus' day. There was actually a god there that they called Pan, who was half man, half goat. And this is where we get the word panic, because this god was so terrifying looking, this god or spirit. And what they would do to appease him was human sacrifices. They would take young virgins, and they would lead them up to the top of this mountain, and they would drop them down. And if blood ran through the stream, it would mean that Pan was not pleased with the sacrifice, so we needed another one. I know this is icky, and I want to talk about fluffy things, but this is just the truth of what happened. I had no idea. Lots of young girls march the same steps that I do. I have two young daughters. I can't even imagine. The same footsteps, they marched towards their doom, all to try to please a God that would never save them. See, there's also a spot here in Caesarea Philippi where there is a hole. I didn't actually see the hole. I'm glad I didn't see the hole. But there is a space where there's a hole that goes so deep that to this day there is no amount of rope that's been deep enough to touch the bottom. And the people of the day called this the gates of Hades or the gates of hell. And so the pagans would worship here because of that hole that, that there that you see a picture of, that's where they would put statues in the wall. You can see how it's kind of carved that way. They would put statues of their gods in there. This hole I don't have a picture of because I didn't see it. I didn't want to. But that's where they believed the spirits would enter and exit out of, was out of this one hole. And so, as we get to read this text that I'm going to read you, I think there's one more picture real quick before I read the text. You can, it's not a great picture, but that's the sanctuary of Pan, and that's what their temple area would have looked like at the time of Jesus. It's all rubble now. Thank God. But that's what it looked like at the time. This was a real place 
where they would engage in these disgusting, traumatic acts of worship to these spirits. So I want you to flip with me to Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 17. And it reads like this. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Jesus says, but what about you? He asked, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered him, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but my father in heaven. Now, doesn't knowing the location of this conversation completely flip it upside down? Can you see that? Caesarea Philippi, the place I just described to you, the Mecca of pagan worship, is the place that Jesus intentionally chose to have this conversation. Before going there, you read this just like they're sitting around a picnic table and just, you know, and enjoying the scenery or like, I don't know what I had pictured in my head, but it wasn't this. It's hard to say what would have even been in, within earshot and eyesight of the disciples with Jesus in this conversation? What were they seeing? What were they hearing? Because you know they would have been in the midst of this darkness here. And he chooses this spot to say, who do you say that I am here in this place? Why here? Can you assume this is a place of fear? Yes, I would have been afraid. How about temptation? It's hard to say what the disciples would have seen. They could have seen women in scantily clad, who knows what. He chose a dark place to say, who do you say that I am? Let me tell you today, church, if you're in a dark place of fear, temptation, regret, depression, hopelessness, suicide, drug abuse, addiction. I could go on and on. Jesus is not afraid of it. He's looking you square in the eyes today and he says, come here, daughter. Who do you say that I am? Son, who do you say that I am in the midst of this mess? But wait, it gets better. He goes on to say, and I also say to you that you are Peter and on this rock, can I pause for a second? The rock is where this temple was built. Right now, it's literally just back down to the bedrock. Yes, Peter means rock and there's that element of this conversation too. But Jesus is saying in Caesarea Philippi, on this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom and whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. Doesn't that just open your eyes in a whole new way? He says, Peter, 
who, yes, is the rock of the church, but there's this other meaning on this rock, not in perfect circumstances, not where it's all really beautiful and everything's great and everybody's just worshiping God and we all feel really, really good and it's all full of light. No, 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 no. He takes them to Caesarea Philippi, the darkest place, and he says, on this rock, I'm gonna build my church. My church isn't just for perfect people. It's not just for those who've already seen the light and they're already glorious and they're already doing everything perfectly. He says, no, I've called you for such a time as this in the dark space, and I've called you to build my church here. We can't hide, church. doesn't mean we mix with the darkness. It means we expose our light to the darkness and we go to them and we reach out our hand and we pull them out. We pull them out of the pit of hell. And he gives us power by saying he stood within earshot. Can you imagine the demons that trembled? within earshot and eyesight of a hole that supposedly these spirits went up and down out of entering who even knows what he stands where they can hear him. And he says, the gates of hell are not going to prevail against it. Not against my church. How bold, how bold. And we got to be bold like that too. Who do you say that he is today? Can you stand with me? I know it was a murky, yucky, kind of a topic. It's not the most comfortable thing to sit with. But I had to be obedient to share with you because I can't let a single person, I love and care about each and every one of you, but so does God the Father. And he wants you to know that there is an opportunity even in the midst of your dark and darkest times in the darkest of places that he says, I came here for this. I didn't come here for perfect people. I came here for you. I'm gonna, I'm gonna close in prayer. But if you feel led to come to this altar, the altar is open. And we'll pray with you if I have members of our prayer team who wouldn't mind stepping up just to be you see, on, the, on Mount Carmel, it was all about a showdown of the gods. Who was going to show up? And the darkness couldn't even, they couldn't show up. Fire fell from heaven, from the one true God, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob on Mount Carmel. And in Caesarea Philippi, a few thousand years later, and Jesus has a conversation that says, who do you say that I am in this place? We got to make a choice, church. So if you are, if you could bow your heads, close your eyes. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, We're reaching out a hand to extend, to lead you to the one who can save you. The one who wants to own your soul, but not to make you a slave, to make you free. 
If you want to know this Jesus and you want to know for sure that he is the owner of your soul, I want you to raise your hand. Yes, I see you. I see you. Yes, sister, I see you. So I want you to pray this prayer. Church, will you pray this prayer with me with these amazing people who have just accepted? They're going to accept the Lord into their heart. Say, Jesus, thank you for what you've done on the cross. Thank you for paying the price for my life. Thank you, God, for forgiving me of my sin. I give you my life. I acknowledge you as my Lord and Savior. And I want to follow you. Amen. If you prayed that prayer for the first time, I want you to come forward if you would. We have people that want to pray with you. Pastor Alicia, would we be able to sing Let It Rain one more time? I know I just threw that on you. I'm so sorry. Worship team, if you wouldn't mind, come up. Because as we were singing it this morning, I had no idea about the worship set. (laughs) But Elijah prayed for that drought for three and a half years. And after fire fell and consumed his offering... I'm going to read to you what happened. Said, Elijah ordered them, seize the prophets of Baal. Do not even let one of them escape. So they seized them and Elijah brought them down to the Wadi Kishon and slaughtered them there. Elijah said to Ahab, go up, eat and drink, for there is the sound of a rainstorm. So Ahab went to eat and drink, but Elijah went up to the summit of Carmel and he bent down on the ground and he put his face between his knees. And then he said to the servant, go up and look towards the sea. So we went up, looked and said, there's nothing. Seven times Elijah said, go back, go back. And on the seventh time he reported, there's a cloud as small as a man's hand coming up from the sea. And then Elijah said, go and tell Ahab, get your chariot ready and go down so the rain doesn't stop you. And in a little while, the sky grew dark with clouds and wind and there was a downpour. So Ahab got in his chariot and went to Jezreel. The power of the Lord was on Elijah. Come on. There was a downpour. So not only did God bring the fire, to show his people again who he was, but he brought the rain.